It is Monday, December 18th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, family gatherings and travel is a part of the holiday season, but unfortunately, COVID is still a part of it too. Many don't seem to recognize the fact that COVID can cause severe illness and death in people that are otherwise healthy, young, middle-aged, children, infants, older adults. Plus, being mindful of inclusion and diversity in Northwest Arkansas. And so we've been doing that for seven years. And in the, in the last three years, especially during COVID, you know, Margot and I were concerned about how do we keep building community through COVID. And Prider Center Archives this week plays a focus on famous people who have visited the natural state. They said, I'm an actor. I trained for nine years. I got a master's from Yale University. And I love to act. And I'm very proud of it. All of that and more. But first, this hour's news. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, December 18th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville. Ahead today on our show, we look back at Welcoming Week in WA. We heard from the architects of the event earlier in the fall, but today we dig deeper into their conversation with Randy Wilburn from the podcast I Am Northwest Arkansas. That's in our second half hour. First today, as we gather for the holidays, infectious disease experts warn that the virus that causes COVID-19 is also still circulating. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. COVID is not taking a holiday this season. U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, COVID-19 data trackers show a rise in test positivity, emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and death. But the good news is the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic is quelling, evolving into an endemic illness similar to seasonal influenza and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. COVID-19 infection symptoms are also changing. That's according to Dr. Robert Hopkins. He's professor of internal medicine and pediatrics and chief of the Division of Internal Medicine at UAMS in Little Rock. He also chairs the National Vaccine Advisory Committee and serves as medical director for the National Foundation for Infectious Disease. With the current strains, sore throat is a very common one. Um, loss of taste and smell, what we thought of earlier in the pandemic, is less common, but it still does happen. Cough, fever, runny nose, and we can get some clues based on the particular symptoms people have. I think we're still in a situation where testing is really important. The federal government continues to provide free at-home rapid antigen COVID-19 test kits to all U.S. households available online through covid.gov tests. Test kits can also be purchased at local pharmacies and retailers, but Hopkins says it's best to test only if you are experiencing symptoms. If you do a rapid test in somebody who doesn't have symptoms, they're not quite as useful because they're not as as sensitive or specific. But in somebody that has symptoms and has a positive COVID test, I would recommend they do four things. First and foremost, think about what your illness is right now. Are you keeping food and fluids down? Are you controlling your fever? Are you doing other things to control your symptoms or do you need help with that? 
Second is, have you been vaccinated before and what's your health status? If you have previously received a COVID vaccine, even going back to our early part of our vaccination program, you know, years ago, that does reduce your risk of severe disease. Now, if you've been vaccinated recently, that's much better than vaccinated with the early vaccine, but vaccination is important and people who have chronic health conditions are at higher risk. Third piece is isolate. You need to stay away from other people if you don't want to take a chance on spreading that virus to someone else. Those who test positive for COVID-19 should isolate, but if they're unable to do so, they should wear masks in public, preferably N95 masks, which prevent the spread of airborne respiratory virus particles. Conversely, elders and those with health issues should mask when out and about to prevent catching the virus. The Arkansas Department of Health reported the first case of COVID-19 in Arkansas on March 11, 2020. Since then, more than a million Arkansans have tested positive for the virus. And this year, nearly 66,000 cases were reported, and nearly 600 Arkansans have died. By comparison, four individuals have died due to influenza so far this season. COVID, it continues to circulate for a number of reasons. Part of it is that we've got a relatively unvaccinated population compared to many other areas. Part of it is that we have a number of behaviors that are being demonstrated in our communities that are not necessarily conducive to staying well and not passing viruses. Uh, and third, that with the virus continuing to circulate and with us continuing to get new variants, people are not necessarily going to be well protected from another infection if they've had it once. And so COVID is continuing to cause illness and deaths in our population, not just in older adults, although that's the majority of part, but many don't seem to recognize the fact that COVID can cause severe illness and death in people that are otherwise healthy, young, middle-aged, children, infants, older adults. Hopkins says that holiday travelers taking public transit should mask, practice frequent hand washing, and get the bivalent COVID-19 booster shot prior to departure. Free government subsidized vaccines are no longer offered except to low-income Arkansans available at county public health clinics. Private insurance covers COVID-19 vaccinations from medical providers as well as retail clinics and pharmacies. Medical Arts Pharmacy, with locations in South Bayville and Elkins, offers COVID-19, Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna mRNA vaccines. Pharmacist Julie Stewart says because vaccines are no longer free to patients, nor is the cost for pharmacies to purchase them subsidized by the federal government, stocks are limited. So we're able to get it, but um, we are getting it sort of in small doses, if you will. Um, and part of that is... Um, as you were saying, the, the Department of Health and the federal government um, provided it and at no charge. So we could order, at, of course, there was a huge demand. We could order large quantities of it, you know, hundreds and hundreds at a time. Um, we have an ultra-cold freezer for the Pfizer vaccine, so we could store it in there and to prolong its, its uh, shelf life. Um, and you know, we, they even provided us with supplies to administer the vaccine. Now... Um, the vaccine costs over $100 per dose, the cost of the pharmacy. So we can't buy 500 doses at a time. <laughs> um, it's just not feasible um, to do that. And so we are, are getting kind of week by week. 
Stewart suggests patrons call to check. The pharmacy also sells test kits and did dispense Paxlovid, a COVID-19 treatment, at no charge. But supplies of the free federally subsidized medication is scheduled to run out, requiring consumers to pay for the drug with insurance or out-of-pocket. She says anyone who feels sick should avoid gathering for the holiday. It's not fun to miss a holiday, but sometimes you have to stay home. SARS-CoV-2 virus has mutated over the past three years, producing several variations. Currently, the Omicron XBB.1.5 strain is most prevalent and controlled with the latest bivalent booster shots. But national vaccine data show that only around 15 percent of adults are getting boosters. Again, UAMS professor and physician Dr. Robert Hopkins blames vaccine fatigue. The vaccines that we have for COVID-19 reduce the risk for infection for only a short period of time. They reduce the risk for severe illness for many, many months. And so in in most people, there is real value in getting that COVID vaccine. And there are not common or major side effects for most people from the COVID-19 vaccine. It is really very safe. Hopkins also warned that repeated COVID-19 infections can result in what's referred to as long covid Long COVID has been a new phenomena with some people have neurologic symptoms, some people have chronic lung conditions. We know that people that have had COVID infection are at increased risk for heart attacks and strokes, increased risk for development of diabetes. There are many complications that can develop with COVID-19 infections. There's data that shows that COVID-19 vaccines reduce that risk for you developing long COVID. Being infected with COVID-19 can offer natural protection from reinfection for at least six months. But herd immunity, which protects populations against diseases, including smallpox, polio, and diphtheria, achieved through mass vaccination, is unlikely for COVID-19 due to widespread resistance to getting vaccinated. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still to come on this edition of Ozarks, we hear again a visit for Brandy Dixon with the Prior Center that first aired last winter. Randy brought archives of famous people visiting Arkansas. Is that I'm an actor. I trained for nine years. I got a master's from Yale University, and I love to act, and I'm very proud of it. From Minnie Pearl to Henry Winkler, an Encore Prior Center profile from earlier this year, ahead on today's show. Do you have a story to tell? Come by the Listening Lab at KUAF and share it with us. All you have to do is go online to KUAFListeningLab.com and click on Share Your Story. And after submitting your request, we'll reach out to schedule a time for you to come by the KUAF studio. And you can listen to past conversations from the Listening Lab anytime at KUAFListeningLab.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us today. A very tense week ended with even more tension with the Arkansas State Board of Corrections, Attorney General Tim Griffin, and Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Governor Sanders has been in conflict with the State Board over plans to expand prison beds in Arkansas for several weeks now, asking for additional space to be provided. But the seven-member board has called for more details on how the state plans to fund and staff that expansion. The state board is also autonomous in its decision-making power regarding correctional facilities, according to the state constitution. 
The tension thickened on Thursday after the Board of Corrections voted in a majority to suspend with pay the Secretary of Corrections, Joe Profery, who answers to the board. They also filed a lawsuit claiming Act 185 of 2023, a law that would change the language of the Constitution to read that the Secretary of the Corrections shall serve at the pleasure of the governor, is unconstitutional and undermines its authority. On Friday, Attorney General Tim Griffin filed suit against the Board of Corrections for failing to comply with the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act, and later that day, a Pulaski County judge issued a temporary restraining order in favor of the board's lawsuit. Judge Patty James wrote in issuing the temporary restraining order that, quote, the injury alleged is substantial and relates to the board's constitutional authority to supervise the Department of Corrections and the secretary. She also said that absent relief, the board will suffer immediate and irreparable harm because defendants caused additional beds to be added to inadequate prison facilities. You can read more about the lawsuits, the restraining orders, and all the details from our partners at Talk Business and Politics. Last week, the Federal Reserve did not increase interest rates at its monthly meeting. In an interview with Talk Business and Politics, Mervyn Jeberaj, economist with the University of Arkansas Walton College of Business, said that in the summer of 2022, with the rapid rise in interest rates, many economists predicted the U.S. would be in a recession at some point in 2023. However, he says the 2023 economy did stick the soft landing, even if it might have taken an extra step or two after said landing. So that's where we are in heading into 2024. We've stuck the first landing. You know, we got to see if that one or two more balancing steps uh, next year uh, stick as well, or if they're really big steps and we end up in a recession. Jibaraj also said that the National Association of Business Economics released an outlook earlier this month, stating that three out of four panelists in the survey predicted a less than 50% chance of recession in the coming year. So that is a much higher percentage of economists that were not predicting recession than ever before. If you look at the Federal Reserve's own uh, projections, they're no longer projecting a recession as well. Uh, I think Chairman Jerome Powell's comments to, uh, this past week, he's indicated that he's expecting uh, there not to be a recession, although you know he gives plenty of caveats to give himself an out if there is one. But right now, looking at where we are here in December of 2023, we've certainly beat the expectations. You can see that full interview at Talk Business and Politics. I'd like to say howdy! <laughs> Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History is here with me. Who'd we just hear? Well, that was Minnie Pearl. That I guess you have to be of a certain age uh, to know. And we've had her on before mm-hmm. when I believe we did uh, a profile of Johnny Cash. Right. She was at his toast and roast. But she was in Arkansas to promote Safeway food stores. And in that clip, you know, she would normally wear a like an Easter bonnet type hat. With the price tag still hanging on. Yes, but she was wearing a Safeway ball cap, and she had come to do a promotional thing. And that leads us into the theme for this week's trip through Prior Center Archives. Which is a little random, That's but okay. they sometimes can be. Um, the way these archives are organized at least up to 1993 
there was a computer system in the building of the television station. KATV. Yes, it was in the accounting department. There was no computerized newsroom. And so every quarter or so, every, you know, three months, there would be a dot matrix printout of these books of all the information that was entered. And they were cross-referenced by personality. So Mm -hmm. you could always look up someone's last name or they were doubled with a subject category. And, you know, there, there were scores of categories that that were sort of made up for this this system because it it had never been done before this was sort of a fly by the seat of your pants thing that Jim Pitcock came up with but there are some obvious categories you know you have military you have civil rights you have you know weather fire but then there I've, I've come across some kind of unusual ones that I had forgotten about. And I came across this one called Famous Person. Many of these people that you're going to hear, you have to be of a certain age to even know, know who, who they, they are. are. Okay. But um, they're pretty famous. So hopefully you're aware enough of history that you'll, you'll know who these people are. This next person you should know. You should, yes. This is this one of the is greatest trumpet players ever. Someone who helped develop an American art form. Yes, yes. Satchmo, yeah. Louis Armstrong, was passing through Little Rock, and this was 1966. And uh, Jim Pitcock, the news director, uh, met him at the airport. And uh, here's the interview that Jim did with him. Armstrong, you're 66 years old now, and I guess you've uh, traveled quite a few miles uh, yeah, we, making appearances. We, we travel quite a bit. We've been all over the world several times, you know. And I think uh, the people everywhere is really nice. How did you start your career? Well, from a kid, just like the usual story, but mine was uh, when I started from an orphanage. And, uh, Quite naturally, you get among the the big wigs in music, uh, you know, and uh, they feel that you have something on. Uh, they always help you. And, uh, you look around, you playing music like everybody else, you know, and enjoying it. Um, the next one, here's another one that you have to be of a certain age. Yes. But um, I grew up when this was on the air. As a matter of fact, when I was born, it was the number one program on television and this is kind of an odd story but they were going to induce labor with my mother (laughs) and it was the doctor's favorite show and so in the days before vcrs yes and this was on a saturday night you know it was appointment viewing and he said okay what i want you to do is saturday afternoon pack bag you guys have dinner, watch Gunsmoke, and then come on down to the hospital and we'll have that baby. So I was born on a TV schedule. And <laughs> Makes I, sense that well, you end up I doing what you do. I was born at 10.01, yes. so right as the 10 o'clock news started. Anyway, Ken Curtis played Festus, who was the, the comic relief yeah. Yeah, of the show. But he was actually a really good actor and 
apparently a great singer. I was talking to Jim Pitcock this morning. He said he actually started off singing with the Sons of the Pioneers. I did not know that. And then got the acting gig, but he kind of liked Arkansas. He came and uh, was at the State Fair, rode a horse down Main Street, Little Rock. Okay. And um, this was really strange that I found. He came to Little Rock just to attend a fundraiser for the newly opened McClellan High School. Well, it's just that uh, I had a wonderful letter from the, all the student body at uh, John McClellan High School, and I, uh, I'm here to uh, help raise some money for their booster club and help, uh, of course, you know, they were having a big talent contest out at John McClellan uh, uh, Stadium tonight. And in case it rains, of course, we'll go inside the gym, but uh, we'll, we'll hold a good thought that it won't rain. But anyway, we're going to try to raise money for their booster clubs and, and for some of the things that they need in the school. And also there will be a $500 prize to whoever has the best talent out there from, from uh, all the surrounding schools. What time will the show be starting? starts at uh, 7.30. The next one in 1967, the next year, uh, on a more serious note, Melvin Belli. Famed attorney. Yes. He uh, represented um, Jack Ruby. Right, right. Uh, for for shooting uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald, yeah. Uh huh. And also represented the Rolling Stones when they did the failed, tragic Altamont oh, Speedway concert. Right. He got all that started and did the legal work for it. But he came to Arkansas, and here he is uh, just talking about the legal system in America. Got a better shake here than any place else in the world. You get, uh, I think the, the fairest trial of any place is, is uh, the United States military courts, and then secondly, in our civilian courts, criminal or civil. And thank God we, we don't have assassinations every day. It just seems like uh, we might. And I don't think there's much crime in the streets in proportion here as there are in other countries uh, throughout the world. But uh, we, we give everybody a, a square shake here. and. Uh, we're doing an awfully good job in our court. And I resent some of these uh, politicians, particularly Nixon coming out and saying about uh, uh, law and order with the ethnic overtones. Why doesn't he, if he is a lawyer and he claims that he's a good one, I doubt it, why doesn't he use the expression due process of law? Then we know what we're talking about. Due process of law is the goodness that we do have in our courts. Everybody gets a square shake in this country. If they didn't, in Alaska, Florida, Portland, Maine, San Diego, some lawyer someplace as a watchdog would stand in his hind feet and see that the guy did get a square shake. Now another actor mm -hmm. um, and singer, part of the Rat Pack, Sammy Davis Jr. This is another strange episode in Arkansas history. He came to town to campaign for a man by the name of Sam Sparks. I don't know that name. Well, and neither does the internet. Um, wow. <laughs> I tried to get background on him, and I had to talk to Jim Pitcock, who you know was the longtime news director at KTV, and he covered him. He was uh, an African-American Republican who was a delegate to the Republican National convention in 72 mm -hmm. and he also ran for state senate and somehow was buddies with 
Sammy Davis Jr. And so he came to town okay. to lend a hand. No, I no, I have not. I have not done any campaigning at all. I'm not here. I wouldn't care if he was running on any ticket. He's my friend, and I came here to help him. He is a friend. We've been friends for years, and uh, this is he was the only man I know. It took me all these years. I'm 46, and I'm in this state for the first time based upon <laughs> <laughs> my man. That's all. <laughs> So, um, speaking of entertainers and politics, this is an interesting fella, Pat Paulson. Now, he became famous on the Smothers Brothers show. He started as, a, I believe, a stand-up comic, very deadpan delivery. Yes, yes. And, and uh, apparently, and how all this started was in 68, CBS had sold a five-minute political spot during the Smothers Brothers show. And so the writers decided, well, we'll get Pat Paulson to run for president. And he did, and it was a joke, and it kept coming up year after mm-hmm. year. But in 1972, I mean, the big year was 68. right? But in 72, which was the same year that Arkansas Congressman Wilbur Mills was thinking about running mm-hmm. for president. He stopped through Arkansas, uh, Pat Paulson did, and he was asked about politics. Well, the problem with my posters are they all get stolen in about two hours. Now, New Hampshire, uh, Representative Mills had, uh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Congressman yeah, yes. Mills, excuse me, I downgraded <laughs> him there a little. Congressman Mills uh, had his stuck along the roadway. And they're still there, you know. <laughs> Nobody wanted them, but they all stole mine, I'll tell you. So you are an active candidate. No, I'm not. I'm out of the race. No. It would seem this might be the year you would win. Well, it'll have to be all right in, and that might be a little difficult. Uh, if they, if McGovern and Nixon sort of uh, are even, it's possible uh, we could uh, s- uh, sneak in with the grand prize and have all that power and all that glory. Now, Archie Bunker is, is what a, all of us politicians want, anyway. True. Archie Bunker has come out from a governor. Are you supporting either one of the presidential candidates? Uh, you mean Carol Connors? Yes, has come Carol out for, Connor. Uh, right. Yes. Well, no, I don't support any of the candidates, and I, uh, I don't think it's important what show people think about candidates. I don't think it's any importance at all. So Pat Paulson was actually. You know, it was an ongoing thing all the way up until 92. Yeah. He was even on the ballot in New Hampshire. Like officially qualified. Yes. Registered and all that. And um, got 1% of the vote, and but actually came in right behind Bill Clinton. <laughs> Who had more than 1%. Yes. Yes. Well, he was the comeback kid, right. remember? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So now let's see if you can guess who this celebrity is. It's either Rin Tin Tin or Lassie. <laughs> yeah. And if you're talking 1973, it would be Lassie. Yeah. And it was not the first Lassie. Um, she was here for a promotional thing, as, as all all these folks would <laughs> right. do. But um, we talked to KTV, talked to... Uh, her trainer, and he had been around since the 40s at the beginning. Well, this is a fit generation. Now, a lot of people, uh, when I say fit generation, they think there's five lassies. That's not true. There's only been one lassie and uh, at, at a time. We don't have one dog do one trick and one dog do another. I read one time there's 18 lassies, but we only have one lassie. But this is a fit generation. 
And I started in 1942, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, Roddy McDowell, she was 11 years old, he was 12, and uh, that was 31 years ago, and Lassie's still doing all right for me. This is getting a little later, so mm -hmm. maybe some people will recognize this person, Henry Winkler, who played the Fonz on Happy Days. Right. Um, what is he on now? Uh, it's Barry on HBO. Yes. He's won an Emmy for that portrayal. Yes. He's and so I've, good. I've seen the episode a couple of times or seen the program. It, is it that good? Oh, it's really good. Yeah. And it can be really funny, but it can be very dark. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Bill so Hader I is mean, a, Yeah, I need a to check man. it out. Yeah, it's, it's good, but just be aware. Yeah. So this was the first season of Happy Days. And so it really hadn't taken off. But it was about to. Yes. And he was a very minor character the first couple of seasons. Yeah. And so um, <laughs> he was booked to come to McCain Mall. You know, this was back in the days. Everything happened at the mall. Mm -hmm. And there was a big dance contest. You know, they had a 50s dance contest, sock hop type of thing. And here he is out of character. As a matter of fact, uh, I am the furthest from Fonzie uh, ever. I went to a, a private school. I wore a, um, a, a blue jacket with a crest on, you know, and gray slacks. And uh, I was uh, never, never like that. As a matter of fact, I feared for my life if I came across a guy in a black leather jacket. Is that I'm an actor. I trained for nine years. I got a master's from Yale University. And I love to act, and I'm very proud of it. And uh, it, is the, it is the second best way to live your life. And uh, the first is to be who you are and enjoy yourself. And it's just, a, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I really enjoy it. How about the Happy Days series, are you? Happy Days series is now 16th in the country. We're very proud of that. And uh, we owe it a lot. We owe a lot to uh, Jerry Paris, uh, our director, who is also on the Dick Van Dyke Show as the next door neighbor. And he is incredible. He is just incredible. What's the future for Henry Winkler? I hope, I don't know. Um, Lords of Flatbush is uh, the first film I made, and that's coming around the country now. And it's about a street gang in the 50s. And I just hope to continue to work as an actor and raise a family on the money I make uh, in my profession. Are you married? What's I'm single. I'm 28 years old. And my birthday is October 30th, and I love presents. <laughs> Let's have a little fun now. A little fun. All right. A little uh, fun. All right, let me tell you something. Nice guys don't always finish last. But you got to work your tail off in order to get to the top three. Hey! And that was kind of a half-hearted yeah. uh, going into character there. Yes, yes. But, you know, he mentioned the show was number 16. I looked it up, and it was. And the next season, it dropped to 49. But then they made That's him. That's when they retooled it. Mm -hmm. He became the star it jumped to number 11 the next season, and by the fourth season, number one, back to TV. Mm -hmm. um, Bonanza was huge for years and years and years, and the father was Lauren Green, most amazing voice. And he came to Arkansas to help raise money for the March of Dimes. When you consider that every hour of every day, that's 24 hours a day. 25 families in this country suffer the blight of a child born with a birth defect, and all that means, the pain and frustration for the rest of their lives. Then you know how important it is 
for the March of Dimes now to overcome that obstacle as well. Back to TV, there was a brand new news magazine on ABC. It was actually the second one after 60 Minutes. I mean, 60 Minutes had been on for years. Mm -hmm. uh, it had been number one top-rated news show and there were no others. No one copied it. Well, ABC decided to in 1978, and they came on with a show called 2020. Which, which is, is still going. It sure is. Yeah. Uh, when it came on, us in the newsroom kind of referred to it as 60 Minutes Light. Because it was, you it was know. It a little poppier, a little bit more. Yes. Faster paced. Yes. You know, none of this knocking on the door. Right. Oh, gosh. You know. Right. And it was hosted by Hugh Downs. And so he came to Little Rock on a promotional visit, and he talked to KETV. This is 1979, the second year it had been on the air. The main thing is, I think, to open a, that window on the world to uh, people for a multi-subject hour that is tied together at least by a, a focal point and a... Uh, and and maybe by its very diversity, because we hope to do personality portraits and, and various features that, in addition to investigative reporting. So this last one was a thrill for me. It was the very first interview I conducted uh, and the first story I ever wrote. And this was in 81, so I'd have been just 20, 21, and I'd just become the weekend producer and Dizzy Gillespie was coming to town, greatest jazz trumpet player, he and Louis Armstrong. Right. But I grew up playing trumpet and just loved this guy. And I weaseled my way into finding out where his hotel room was and getting to go up there. And we interviewed him, and I came back and wrote the story, and Jim— Pitcock, my boss, wouldn't let me voice it because I wasn't a reporter. I was a producer, mm -hmm. which was fine with me. So mm -hmm. I handed it off to a guy named Randy Weber. But this was my first big story, my first television interview, my first, we call them packages, right. first uh, big story. So I've, I found it just yesterday in the archives. So um, here's my experience with Although approaching the age of 65, Gillespie has not let that slow his pace, having recently toured Europe. The audiences keep him going. I love live, yeah. I like to see expressions. I have to be close enough to see expressions, too. Because I do get something from an audience, man, you know. Yeah, yeah, an audience can move you. He has been playing so long, even he doesn't know what sparked his interest in music, but that does not keep him from lending a tail. Uh, one day when I was about uh, 16, 16 and a half months, I, I had this dream. And I jumped up out of the bed and hit the floor and grabbed, uh, you know, <laughs> Dizzy Gillespie is a living part of history that shaped a truly American style of music. He is a breed that will be difficult to replace in the music industry. Music is music. 
The same notes are coming from all of the instruments. Yeah, so um, what difference? It, 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 just since this whatever setting, it grooves. This is Randy Weber reporting for New Scene 7. All right, you can find these clips and so many more. Just search for the Prior Center uh, online, and you'll go there and find all these archives. Randy, thank you. Thank you. I'll see you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. This fall, the latest Welcoming Week NWA placed a focus on inclusivity and diversity in Northwest Arkansas. On a recent episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast, host Randy Wilburn talked with two of the architects of Welcoming Week NWA. The 45-minute episode includes conversation with Margot Lamaster, the executive director of Engage NWA, and Monica Kumar a belonging and inclusion strategist with Engage NWA. In this edited excerpt, we hear Monica discuss her path to becoming involved with Welcoming Week NWA. We moved here about 10 years ago. And really, for me, I'm not going to lie, it was really, I was really scared. I was really scared as a person of color mm-hmm. to move to Arkansas, especially given some of the experience that I had in the 80s growing up in London, which were not all uh, there was lots of amazing experiences, but racially there was a lot of concern and challenge, and I didn't want that for my son. And so we were—I was really concerned about moving to Arkansas, and you know, we thought we'd be on the two-year plan. And once I moved here, my husband and I decided that, hey, you know, he works at Walmart, and I was like, well, what I know how to do is think about communities and how do we build and how do we get to learn about communities and how do we build community. And so that's kind of what, what I moved into. I became executive director of downtown Bentonville Inc. I did that for a few years and I really was able to, I had the honor of being able to meet a lot of leaders and concerned citizens through that role and then realize that, hey, there may be a place for me here. And then about seven years ago, I had the privilege and honor of attending a racial equity workshop by the Groundwater Institute in New Orleans. And that pretty much transformed the way I thought about how we can build equity in Northwest Arkansas. So alongside Sean Barney, who was my partner at the time in work, we thought about what does it look like to bring this racial equity work and training into Northwest Arkansas. And that's when the council really stepped up and stepped in. And that was when I really first got to know Margot. I had you know, been in meetings with her before then, but we had never worked so closely together. And I was so lucky to have Nelson Peacock and the leadership team at the council support the work. And so we've been doing that for seven years. And in the, in the last three years, especially during COVID, you know, Margot and I were concerned about how do we keep building community through COVID. And we, we had always uplifted Welcoming Week, but Engage wasn't sort of in the front of that at the time. And then we thought it would be a wonderful opportunity. So three years ago, we did a lot of virtual experiences and and found that the community responded really well to that. And that, you know, and I think last year we were thinking, well, let's see what it looks like to add some real life experiences to that once we were coming out of the pandemic. And we found that, 
you know, that was amazing. The community wanted that. They were looking for places to gather and connect post COVID. And this year, you know, we have just been absolutely astounded by the participation and the community response. And all of this is grounded and centered in the question of what does it mean to belong in Northwest Arkansas? How can we build deeper senses of belonging and welcoming? And how can we all play a part in making sure that everybody feels that way? Even if I don't understand something, that doesn't not make it right. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, I just, I need to have better understanding and clarification. And, you know, I think it's, again, when we don't ask the questions that we should be asking, or at least hearing the answers to those questions, then we miss out on our ability to have a better understanding and a better relationship with the people that are around us. And I always think about like, you know, the motto for the nation of Jamaica, out of many, one. And when you think of Northwest Arkansas now, that's kind of like, that whole mandate, you know, out of many, one, that's kind of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create one Northwest Arkansas. It's comprised of so many different pieces and parts. And, and, and I know, and I get it. I mean, it might be difficult for some people that have, you know, known Northwest Arkansas one way and one way only for so long. And it seems like it's just drastically changed. Cause like I was looking at the numbers and we were in, 2003, we were 376,000 people. In 2023, we're 576,000 people. By 2045, we will be over a million people. And anytime you add that many people in a space, in an area, there's going to be change. It's inevitable. It's how you manage and steward that change that really, really helps to define a space in an area. And I think that, you know, the work that all of you guys are doing right now is very important for us because, you know, I think we want to be on at the forefront of defining this area of Northwest Arkansas and what it means to us now. Certainly, we can't exclude history. We have to historically look back at the past. And then we also have to be thinking about what the future holds. So with that said, do you feel like, and, and this is another question for both of you, that welcoming week achieved a lot of the objectives that you would have hoped it would have achieved coming out of the pandemic, trying to engage people where they are based on, you know, just a number of different factors. Do you feel like that we're on the right path? And did Welcoming Week portend to that? And either one of you can answer that. Monica, you want to go first this time? Oh, sure. Thank you so much. You know, Randy, I think for me, and Marco may have different answer. I think for me, I was always, I didn't really have a goal for it. For me, the goal was, I hope the community lets us know what they want out of this. So while that first year was definitely based on how do we build community through COVID and thinking about that, I think since then, I mean, if people were not excited about meeting in person the next year and not excited about stepping up, I mean, the only reason Welcoming Week exists is because of our partners. So we have definitely thought about this as a community-led effort. And, you know, we create lots of tools and resources and ways for community to engage through the year. And what the community is telling us and what the participation numbers are telling us is that they, our community wants more ways to engage. Our community wants more ways to celebrate and to help learn and educate. And I think that one of the things I am most proud of about Welcoming Week which I think is a little bit different perhaps from some of the other initiatives, is that it's regional. And I truly believe that if we are going to be a model for the country, and I think we can be, 
I truly believe that we need to be a regional model. And so for me, that part of Welcoming Week is really, really powerful. Having the Bentonville Library participate, having the Rogers Library participate, having the Fayetteville Library participate, having Silent Springs participate. And then every year we have a new library joining us. Springdale does an incredible job of uplifting Welcoming Week and in their own community. And I think that that is really important because we want the work to reflect the community that it sits in. And we want the work to reflect the city that it sits in and the library that it sits in and the school that it sits in. So I think that the answer really is we want to keep creating, or for me, the answer is I want to keep creating all the scaffolding and the framework, but we want people to fill all that in. I don't want to build the house. I want the community to tell us what that needs to look like. That's an excerpt from a recent episode of the podcast, I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn. You can hear the entire discussion Randy has about Welcoming Week NWA with Monica Kumar, a belonging and inclusion strategist with Engage NWA, and Margot Lamaster, the executive director of Engage NWA. You can find that at KUAF.com, IamNorthwestArkansas.com, or by subscribing to the podcast. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Blues singer, pianist, and songwriter Sippy Wallace was born Beulah Thomas in Plum Bayou in Jefferson County, Arkansas, on November 1st, 1898. She was one of 13 children. The Thomases were very much a musical family. Her father was also a preacher, and she sang and played piano in his church. She later said she got the nickname Sippy in grade school because her teeth were so far apart she had to sip everything. She grew up in Houston, Texas, which is why she was later promoted as the Texas Nightingale. In the teens of the 20th century, Sippy moved to New Orleans, living there with her musician brothers George and young Herschel, until in 1917 when she married Matt Wallace. She hooked up with the emerging New Orleans jazz scene through her brother George, also a Plum Bayou native. Like their sister, both George Washington Thomas Jr. and Herschel Thomas became known as innovative writers and influential pianists in the development of jazz and blues. In the 1920s, they all moved to Chicago, Illinois, which was becoming a commercial recording center for jazz and especially blues, as well as rivaling New Orleans as a U.S. musical hub. Popular recorded blues in the 1920s was dominated by female vocalists, often with full band arrangements. For most people of the era, their introduction to the blues was through the likes of Bessie Smith, Ida Cox, Ma Rainey, and Sippy Wallace. Wallace recorded more than 40 songs through the decade for OK Records, one of the premier blues labels of its time. Her sidemen included some of her New Orleans friends like Louis Armstrong, King Oliver, Clarence Williams, and Sidney Bechet. All would become giants in jazz, which was emerging as its own genre distinct from the blues. Wallace wrote the majority of her songs herself or with her brothers. George Jr. handled the publishing. As she honed her songwriting voice, Wallace became known for her sharp, self-possessed, and often ribald lyrics. And more than a century beyond, Sippy Wallace songs remained highly regarded in the blues canon. After a seemingly charmed career, Sippy Wallace faced tragedy in 1936 with the death of her husband, Matt. Her brother, collaborator, and music publisher, George Washington Thomas Jr., considered by some to be the inventor of boogie-woogie piano, died soon after. 
By the mid-1930s, the commercial dominance of women in blues had also declined and has never again matched the 1920s wave that Wallace had rode. Subsequently, she backed away from secular music. Wallace returned to her musical roots as a church organ player in Detroit, Michigan, where she'd be based for the rest of her life. The Texas Nightingale, who in the Roaring Twenties bragged on stage and on record that she was a mighty tight woman, could now be found most weeks playing at Detroit's Leland Baptist Church. I want you all to learn to make your hands on me and have a nice good mate for every day in the week. The mid-century resurgence of folk and blues music saw many of Sippy Wallace's peers staging musical comebacks. By the late 1960s, Wallace was finally convinced by her old musician friends to do the same. She made concert appearances at such major events as the Newport Blues Festival, the Chicago Blues Festival, and the Ann Arbor Blues Festival. An album pairing her with Victoria Spivey, who'd also recorded blues in the 1920s with many of the same musicians as Wallace, was released in 1970. A stroke slowed Wallace's newfound momentum, but only temporarily. Guitarist Bonnie Raitt was a champion of Sippy Wallace's music from early on. Raitt had included two Sippy Wallace songs on her 1971 debut and another on her follow-up the next year. As Raitt became better known, she continued introducing Wallace to an even wider audience, with the two often performing on stage together. Bonnie Raitt helped Wallace get a record deal on Atlantic, and Raitt produced the 1982 album Sippy. It won a Handy Award and was a Grammy nominee. After nearly a century in music, Arkansas and blues pioneer Sippy Wallace died in Detroit, Michigan on her November 1st birthday in 1986. From 1982, here's Sippy Wallace of Jefferson County, Arkansas with You Got to Know How. Played Maestro. What you got? 
Pioneer and Jefferson County, Arkansas native Sippy Wallace with You Got to Know How. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a collaboration between the city of Fayetteville Genesis Church, and Seven Hills provides a work lottery program for the unhoused community in Fayetteville. I've benefited by, number one, um, maintaining uh, the bike trail and uh, the town branch area. That's where we're at. We're usually at town branch. Uh, Can you put me on the list? That story and more on a Tuesday edition of our show. This month's Short Talks from the Hill features Mervyn Jebaraj. As director of the Center for Business and Economic Research in the Sam Walton College of Business, Jebaraj leads a team of researchers who provide applied economic and business research to federal, state, and local government and to businesses in Arkansas. In the podcast, Jebaraj discusses inflation, consumer sentiment, and economic growth in Northwest Arkansas. The center recently released the Northwest Arkansas Region Report, an analysis of the Northwest Arkansas economy. Jeparaj explained what goes into the making of this report. When we compared ourselves to the first set, uh, we were a lot better. So we'd like make this a little harder and try regional comparisons that are bigger than us. Think of Tulsa or Kansas City or Omaha, which is a little further away than those two uh, metro regions. But they're larger metro areas, have a lot more people, a lot more businesses and so on. So we wanted to compare ourselves to the larger metro areas that were near us. Again, we were outperforming them, you know, not in terms of size, but in terms of growth. You can listen to Jebaraj wherever you get your podcasts or by going to arkansasresearch.uark.edu, the home of research and economic development news at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, Kyle Kellums, Randy Bulburn, and Stephen Cook. Additional help from our partners at Talk Business and Politics. Our show was produced in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Kyle Kellums will be back in the co-host chair with me tomorrow for a Tuesday edition of our show. Until then, thank you so much for being with us, and be well.